This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation uh, event. My name is Torsten Bell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Foundation. Now, I'm always excited about Resolution Foundation events. This time, I'm excited and a little bit nervous because we, we haven't done lots of research directly on the Brexit question over the course of the last uh, six years. And I hear there's been some tensions and disagreements over those six years. Uh, maybe we were right or wrong not to have done lots, but our excuses are twofold. One, for lots of those six years, it wasn't clear what the form of Brexit was going to take. Uh, definitely before the referendum, that was true. And secondly, we haven't had a lot of data to work with because it hasn't actually been happening. Uh, and those two things for an organisation that focuses on what do the numbers tell us is happening, as opposed to what we think is happening, have been reasonably large constraints. Um, but uh, we don't have those excuses anymore. We found out in early 2021 the form Brexit would take because we started living it. And the trade data in particular has started to come in over the course of the last 18 months to tell us about uh, what is happening. So today we've published uh, imaginatively titled The Big Brexit, because it is pretty big guys, um, uh, setting out our assessment of both what has happened so far with um, over the last 18 months, particularly to trade, but not just to trade, and then what, given that we now know the form of Brexit, should we think about via the TCA, Trade and Corporation Agreement, what should we think about that as the lasting effects of Brexit as we look across the 2020s? Because this is part of our Economy 2030 inquiry between ourselves and uh, CEP at the London School of Economics, funded by the Nuffield Foundation, so that when we're thinking about what the country's trying to achieve in the 2020s, it's informed by what's already happening with the Brexit that we are living through. So that is what we're going to try and talk about today. Uh, we're going to do it with no rows there, and we've got a great panel to do it. So first of all, you're going to hear a summary of the research from Sophie Hale, who's a principal economist here at the Foundation and one of the co-authors of the paper. Then you're going to hear from Maureen Khan, who's economics editor at The Times, and before that, dabbled in Brussels and other things. There. And then from Anon Menon, who is the director of UK and a Changing Europe, a great uh, think tank and broad, I don't know what you call it, think tank, think tank and academic think. overlap. <coughs> think what? What yeah, do we don't mean? know what to call it. You don't know what you are. Okay, whatever. It's great anyway. You've all seen lots of their work. They've been doing brilliant work over the last uh, six, seven years on what on earth we should all think about um, what is going on at a very confused time for British politics and British economics. And then we can hear from all of you, as always, go on to Slido. Uh, the What is the hashtag? The hashtag is Brexit Britain. There, so go on to Slido and put your questions in there and we'll have some polls where we can all furiously disagree with each other. Even if you manage to read the whole thing, don't just pay attention to the bits that fit your priors. Because even as we were working through this, there were definitely parts of this research which showed things that weren't what I was expecting there. And I've, if you thought everything in here is exactly what you were expecting, uh, you're probably a bit old. They, um, or you should go and get paid a lot of money in the city. You really haven't done much on Brexit, have you, exactly. if you're going to say that? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that is the plan today. I hope that was what you're all uh, expecting. So first of all, Sophie, what's in the report? Great, thanks. Uh, so, thank you, Tolston. Um, so, first, I'd just like to thank my co-authors, um, so uh, Swati Dungra and uh, Ningjia from the LSE, um, and Emily Fry um, from the Resolution Foundation, um, for what was uh, quite a um, hefty report in the end, uh, with extensive uh, modelling work. Um, so, yeah, quite a bulky piece of work. 
Um, so, uh, yes, it's uh, another report on Brexit. Um, but uh, I guess, why do we think it's important? And it's key to set out that we're not doing this to sort of relitigate um, the merits of leaving the EU and of the referendum that took place sort of almost um, six years ago to the day. Um, instead, as, as Torsten's kind of set out, we see Brexit as a sort of major driver of change over the next decade. Um, and so we think it's really important to understand the impacts um, for the UK economy of, of those changes. Um, and when we think about Brexit, um, we often think about it as this kind of one-off uh, shock. So, you know, an X percent shock to GDP or, or productivity. Um, and instead, we think it's quite useful to kind of break that down and think about it occurring over these three sort of quite distinct phases. Um, so the first phase is the period um, between the referendum. So after the referendum result came in, um, but before the kind of trade um, trading arrangement with the EU actually changed. Uh, and this was kind of characterized by, you know, quite high uncertainty um, and, and uh, you know, a currency depreciation that we'll talk about um, in a bit. Um, and then the second phase um, was the kind of 18 months that we have had since where we have been trading um, with the EU under this trade and cooperation agreement that was agreed, um, you know, um, in the negotiation from the negotiations in the first phase. Um, and then the final phase, um, which we're also going to talk about, is the sort of longer run adjustment. So it's going to take firms many years to sort of reorientate their activity and for firms to move um, in response to the kind of um, the, the deeper changes that these these change in trade barriers result. And, and they're not necessarily impacts that we're going to see, um, you know, within the first 18 months and in the trade data that we've already got. So talking about the first phase first, um, this was kind of characterized by two impacts, so a fall in real incomes um, and a fall in investment, in business investment specifically. Um, so I'll talk about the real income shock first. It's, it's not shown here, but um, we saw this you know, sharp depreciation of the pound um, and that led to an increase in import prices. Um, it increased inflation up to sort of whopping highs of around 3%, which obviously, you know, in today's levels um, maybe don't seem so uh, uh, exceptional, but um, did lead to this kind of cost of living fall um, of around, you know, equivalent to around um, £870 um, in the kind of period um, immediately after Brexit, um, after the referendum, sorry. Um, and we also saw um, uh, a fall in business investment, and that is shown here. So there was a, you know, a big spike in, in business uncertainty um, immediately after the referendum, uncertainty about the future of the, of the relationship that would occur um, with the EU. Um, and this chart shows that, you know, Whereas inflation was growing at about 1.7% per quarter um, in the three years leading up to the referendum, sort of it plateaus um, immediately afterwards and, and kind of massively underperforms um, what, the growth that was expected um, sort of pre-referendum, um, falling by 0.1% per quarter um, in the three years after the referendum. Uh, and it's also kind of significantly underperforming against its G7 comparators over this period. Um, so that's the kind of first phase um, impacts, um, and then the trade and cooperation agreement was um, was implemented, um, and uh, this is where we kind of expect to start seeing um, some of the trade impacts um, really kind of materialising. Um, and it was widely expected by sort of most people who'd looked at Brexit that what we would see would be a relative fall um, in EU trade, you know, relative to kind of non-EU trade. Uh, and most people have probably seen like some version of this chart. Um, this is showing goods exports. Um, to the EU and to the non-EU, 
Um, and what you see, so between the referendum and between the trade and cooperation agreement, those kind of two grey lines, um, they're very closely tracking each other. Um, so there is no kind of no evidence of a kind of forward-looking trade adjustment um, happening before those barriers came into place. Um, and then after um, the TCA implemented, we're still not seeing that kind of relative decline of, of EU exports, um, which would look like the kind of red line falling down and, and kind of staying below below the blue one. We do see a temporary drop down in January when the, when the agreement's kind of first implemented, but it's, it's kind of quickly recovered back to um, its sort of pre pre um, Brexit levels. Um, and so some are taking this as quite good news, this um, as evidence that, you know, UK exporters have been a bit more resilient than we might have expected and that the kind of impacts of these barriers haven't hit them as hard um, as expected. Um, but what we do find is that UK openness has fallen quite substantially um, between 2019 and 2021. So UK openness fell eight percentage points um, over this period. Um, and if we look at, um, at and this is obviously um, bigger than, than the comparators shown here. Um, France has the most similar kind of export profile to the UK, the most kind of similar trade profile. Um, and for France, it fell by two percentage points over this period. Um, obviously, this is mixed up with the pandemic and the, and the impacts of, of, on trade um, that it had, um, particularly in, in 2020, um, really big um, fall in, in trade. Um, but even when we look between 2020 and 2021, so this is the period where there was quite a strong recovery um, in, in global trade, particularly in goods trade, um, UK openness still fell over this period. Um, and in fact, it grew in all um, EU countries um, except for Ireland um, between 2020 and 2021. Um, so then moving on to look at, so that's the kind of picture on openness. Um, we then look at kind of the picture on, on UK competitiveness by looking at um, the share you know, the change to the share of imports um, that the UK makes up in some of its key trading partners. Um, so this is using um, partner countries' data. Um, the red is kind of showing the, the trend before. You see some, some growing, some kind of shrinking a little bit. Um, so the share's changing, but, but only very small um, amount over time. Um, the blue is, is, is the kind of 2020 kind of COVID impact. And then the green is um, the change in 2021. So we're seeing that the share that the UK makes up of um, a number of its key trading partners is falling even in 2021 after the kind of global trade recovery has started. It's, it's kind of well underway. Um, it's worth noting that um, you know, that kind of very sharp fall on the EU seems to kind of contradict what we talked about earlier, which is that we haven't seen this relative decline in EU compared to non-EU. Um, and so there's kind of a bit of a data issue going on here. And um, when you use the UK data instead of the EU data, and um, you see that it is much more in line with those kind of non-EU key, um, key partners. Um, and um, yes, and so, and so that kind of explains away some of um, why you're not seeing that, that, that divert. The, the divergence, but you are seeing it in the, in the EU data, you know, quite a sharp fall in, in, in UK competitiveness in the EU market. Um, great. Um, uh, so, okay, so overall, this kind of gives us a picture that, you know, UK trade openness um, and competitiveness has been affected um, by Brexit, even if we haven't seen the kind of relative declines that we might expect it. Um, but what we're also seeing is UK exporter behaviour is changing in some ways. Um, so the way that UK exporters are trading with the EU has changed. So there's past research showing that kind of the number of variety, uh, the variety of, of trade relationships, um, which is kind of measured as the product country, uh, the number of product country relationships um, for UK exports has fallen. Um, and when we in this report, we kind of break that down to look at it, the impact across sectors. And here you see that across pretty much all sectors, that number of varieties is falling as well, the variety of relationships. Um, particularly sharply in, in sectors like agriculture, we're seeing a 50% decline in the number of relationships relative to the non-EU. Um, 
the kind of narrative around this impact has been that you know this might be being caused by SMEs dropping out of um, trading with the EU because of the kind of new barriers that have been introduced. Um, and while that may well be explaining some of this, what we've also seen in the data is that trade is concentrating around um, certain EU countries or in certain EU countries, um, and specifically the countries with which the UK is connected by um, a, a kind of a key UK port. Um, so those three countries that we look at here is France, um, Belgium, uh, France, the Netherlands and Belgium. Um, and what you can see is the percentage um, point, yeah, sorry, the share um, of UK exports going to those countries has increased across, again, in almost all of the sectors um, that we look at, um, between kind of like four and 15%. Um, so these are quite substantial kind of changes. And, and what this might represent is that UK firms, um, UK exporters are choosing, instead of to, to trade directly with some of their smaller trading partners um, in the EU, um, they're using these countries as sort of hubs and then using EU distributors to kind of um, move trade um, around within the single market. Um, and this could be kind of a short-term coping strategy while they kind of change long-term um, uh, uh, plans, or it could be a, a kind of a longer-term um, uh, uh, adaptation to the way that they trade with the EU, but only time will tell. And, and we could still see kind of further developments in, in that kind of EU trading relationship. Um, it's worth pointing out transport manufacturing here, a bit of an oddity kind of moving in the opposite direction on both of those measures. Um, that is a sector that has been deeply affected by um, the pandemic and continue to be affected um, quite strongly by supply chain disruptions into 2021. So um, it's probably just um, there's, there's some weird stuff going on there um, relating to, to, to the pandemic. Um, so that kind of talks about um, what's happened um, in, in phase two and, and what we've seen in the kind of trade data so far. Um, and while it gives us some indication of what's going on, as we said, we're expecting the full adjustment to take many years. Um, and so, um, you know, as firms reorientate their activity, we want to look at kind of what those longer term impacts are expected to be. Um, and to do that, we've done, undertaken quite an extensive um, modelling exercise um, and a, a detailed assessment of, of what's happening um, in the trade and cooperation agreement at the depth of the trade across, um trade and cooperation agreement and the new trading arrangement between the UK and the EU and um, to look at you know how deep are the provisions across different sectors um, and we've assessed that using a quantitative trade model that has a regional and a dynamic capability so that allows us to look at the impacts across regions as well as um, kind of time paths of, of impacts as well um, uh, and you can find all the much more extensive details um, on, on how that exercise was done in the report so please do uh, take a look um, and what this chart shows is the fall in gross output across different sectors um, that comes out of that modelling exercise. Um, and we see some really substantial falls for some sectors. So, for example, fishing sees a fall in, in gross output of around 30%. And this will really you know, feel like quite a painful adjustment for the sector and for the workers um, within that sector. Um, if we look at manufacturing, so that's the kind of red and pink colour, um, it's quite polarised. So some of the sectors are among those like expected to be um, worse hit by um, by the Brexit shock, whilst some others are, are kind of expected to gain or expected to grow. Um, uh, finally, if we look at kind of professional services, so that's the kind of blue coloured um, bars, um, we see that they're quite consistently in the kind of lower half in the negative impacts. And that's because we're assessing that the trade and cooperation agreement will have quite big implications for the barriers um, for professional services. Um, great. So despite the fact that we're seeing these um, kind of uh, 
sectoral impacts and quite different sectoral impacts um, across sectors. What we're not seeing is um, kind of substantial industrial shift um, in the economy sort of before or, or without and, and, and with Brexit. Um, so this kind of shows the contribution to gross output of quite broad industrial um, sectors. And the, the two pictures look pretty similar. So. Um, while professional services is shrinking a little bit, so it shrinks by around 0.3 percentage points, um, overall these 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 two kind of states of the of the country look fairly similar. Um, so the overall economic structure will be relatively unchanged, and by that we mean you know the economy will still be quite services orientated. You know the manufacturing sector is still expected to be fairly small compared to um, other comparators, smaller than France's, for example. Um, so. The impacts are also not distributed um, evenly across regions, um, and that's what we're showing here. So this is the kind of gross output fall across different regions. Um, a lot of the kind of public focus has been, well, what is Brexit going to do to kind of regional inequalities? Um, and there's been a lot of attention kind of given to this question. Uh, and so that's why we've kind of looked at um, how, how impacts will fall across regions. Um, and what we see here is the northeast is expected to be the worst hit. Um, and so that is, um, you know, uh, poorer, um, than, than the average UK region, um, and um, it is, um, you know, the, the, the big negative output shock means that we probably will see those productivity and income um, gaps growing um, as a result of Brexit. Um, London here is, is slightly above average, um, although we should say that this result is, is a bit uncertain. And um, when we look at kind of different years data, what we see is um, that the exposure to um, the exposure of London to the EU um, kind of moves around a bit. And so, you know, it can kind of shift that picture. But what we can take away as a kind of overall from this is that there's a little sign that um, the, the impacts of Brexit are going to be helping sort of to helping leveling up. Um, OK, so. Overall, there aren't going to be these kind of big changes to the nature of the economy, um, as we've shown. So what are going to be the kind of longer lasting impacts? Um, we think it's going to be basically long lasting impact on slower real wage growth and slower productivity growth over the next decade. Uh, and this chart shows us, you know, the, the change in trade openness that we would um, expect to see by 2030, as well as the shocks um, to uh, labour productivity and, and real wages. Um, we see that um, real wages decline by 1.8%. Um, uh, by 2030, uh, and that's equivalent to a fall of around £470 per worker. Um, when we look at productivity, we see um, by 2030 a 1.3% um, uh, fall um, relative to relative to kind of being in the EU. Um, and to put that into context, that's equivalent to around a quarter of the of the last decade's um, productivity growth. Um, so. That 1.3% number, so for people who know the kind of Brexit literature quite well, that might seem quite small. So the OBR, for example, um, estimates that the productivity impact will be 4%. Um, uh, so it's important that we emphasise that the, this modelling exercise that we've done is just looking at the kind of direct impacts of the trade and cooperation agreement and their changes to those trading arrangements. And therefore, it doesn't capture the sort of wider channels um, that could be contri contributing to um, a fall in dynamic in productivity. Um, for example, changes to investment, to foreign direct investment, changes to migration policy, um, several other kind of consequences of Brexit. Um, that could be could be having influence, um, and the OBR assumes that you know two fifths of that four percent had already taken place before the trading arrangements actually changed. So before um, these new trade barriers were erected, um, and, and trade would you know start to be impacted by them. Um, okay. Um, so final chart to show you today um, is um, looking at so 
we've said that firms are going to have to kind of reorientate their activity. Um, and what we find is that on average, that kind of reorientation is, is, is going to benefit um, kind of less productive firms and sectors on average. And the reason is these tend to be less internationally competitive. So they tend to be less exposed to um, EU trade um, uh, or, or exporting to the EU specifically. Um, and they tend to struggle more with kind of competing with EU imports, um, which will now face kind of bigger barriers. Um, and this chart is specifically looking at just manufacturing sectors. And what we show here is kind of the, the, the impact on gross output and the productivity um, of, of sectors in 2019. Um, and the bubble size represents the kind of size of the sector. And what we see here is that the sectors set to grow tend to be on average, um, the, the ones which are lower productivity in 2019. Um, and the ones that are set to grow are those that um, tend to have kind of higher productivity. Productivity. So the, the weighted average productivity of growing sectors is, is £37 per hour um, versus £47 per hour for the, for, for the shrinking sectors. Um, so those kind of hoping that this any manufacturing revival we do get can kind of kickstart the sort of productivity um, in the UK economy, this, this kind of suggests that that's probably not going to be the case. Um, okay, finally, so just to wrap up, um, for what have we found? So what we, what we haven't seen is this relative um, decline in, in um, EU trade that was expected. Um, instead, what we've seen is a, is a fall in UK openness and competitiveness that's quite broad-based, has affected both EU and non-EU trade. Um, we're expecting to see, you know, as the kind of further adjustment happens, we are expecting some quite painful adjustment for some sectors and for the workers within those sectors. Um, but that is not going to lead to some sort of massive um, change to the nature of the economy and to the industrial structure um, of, 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 the, of, the, you know, of the UK economy as a whole. Um, instead, the long lasting impact that we expect to see is this sort of real wage and productivity growth slowdown um, over the next decade. And that's going to be very broad based across sectors, across households um, and across regions. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Sophie. Um, uh, you deserve particular praise for not getting into Annex 1, Annex 2 or Annex 3. Uh, but, you know, everyone that's got too much life on them can go and have a read on the, uh, on the, um, on the website. Right, we covered a lot there. A lot about what we thought might happen and didn't happen, and a lot about what has actually happened and might happen in future. I think it's important to say that obviously this is covering the trade side of the picture. There's other Resolution Foundation work covering what is happening on migration uh, and to some degree on to firms. So this is so we're trying to focus specifically here on the trade uh, picture. Maureen, what do you reckon? Well, first, uh, thank you for having me, and also thank you for doing this. Um, reporting about Brexit so far in my job is something that I've tried to avoid because there is a big kind of imperative. It's lucky nothing's going on. Yeah, it's, no, it's lucky that the lobby get to deal with all the politics because the economics is quite difficult. In there's a sort of empirical gap, and also we're in a world where, when the government or the central bank wants to talk about what's happened to the economy. They said we've had a series of supply side shocks, so Brexit is put in with the war in Ukraine, etc, etc. And it's just one of many factors and nobody ever elaborates on it. So there's been a slight, I think, auto-political conspiracy of silence that other people have spoken about, about trying to disentangle the pandemic from Brexit. So I think this is a great, it's a very useful contribution for people in my profession to actually give readers a message. And it's very, very nuanced. And, you know, newspapers are where nuance goes to die a lot of the times, even Harsh. sadly in the business, <laughs> even sadly in the business pages. But I think the message that would probably, you know, that I would take away for the readers is that, you know, the longer term trends that we've seen in the UK economy, which is falling productivity and, um, you know, weak wage growth, which leads to 
weaker living standards have been exacerbated by Brexit. Um, and despite, you know, all the very nuanced takeaways, I think that's probably the headline that, you know, the average reader would, would you know, gain from this. Um, I think it's also interesting that, you know, I was in Brussels for four years and it, there's, a, there's a huge shift in the way that the success of Brexit is judged on the other side of the channel and here. I mean, here we're sort of, I mean, I think it's understandable, obsessed with singular data points month on month, year on year to say, well, despite Brexit, this happened or despite Brexit, this happened to judge whether it's successful. But I think from the EU's perspective, Brexit has always been about the long term. It's always been about how to judge what happens to the UK economy in the longer run. And this perennial fear, which I'm not sure is, it will be dampened by this, but that the UK becomes this, you know, freewheeling, um, low regulatory uh, Singapore, um, that it actively undercuts EU standards and therefore becomes, uh, you know, represents a rival economic model that some political forces in the European Union may want their countries to do. I think this shows the difficulty of making that judgment even after six years and also the difficulty of changing your economic structure so fundamentally yeah. because of a political event. I mean, history would tell us that the UK probably hasn't changed very much at all, even, you know, even with revolutionaries like Thatcher trying to, you know, change the image in their state. So from their perspective, I think this is also quite a useful contribution because I think it might, that moral panic, which I think definitely still exists, and it actually exists on the countries that you spoke about, Sophie, which is the Netherlands, Belgium and France, those most exposed to the UK, that never has never really gone away. So I think it also serves quite a useful purpose in that sense. And I think generally... I seem to sense that there might be a tipping point in, in the Brexit debate where we are seeing more businesses and more policymakers actually trying to talk about what Brexit is doing to the economy. Um, the Northern Ireland Protocol has taken up a lot of political space, but you see even uh, the CBI, you know, telling the government to cease and desist. There is this there is this bigger issue which is not covered by this, which is about what's happening to the labour market. The fact that the labour market is shrinking, it's it's pushing. It's probably going to you know help push up inflation. So far, I think the bank has stayed in quite safe territory, talking about long COVID and health and sickness. But there's an obvious migration element, which at some point we have to stop talking about the puzzle of the shrinking labour market and try and actually just work out what the hell is going on. So I think it, it, I hope that this creates some safe ground for very clever people whose job it is to think about how what, you know what best policy we should um, be having in the UK to refer to some of the empirics. Some of the questions I have that maybe we can answer in the debate is, is the openness metric, what exactly you're looking at mm -hmm. to make that judgment. I think that would be quite useful to disentangle, um, you know, Brit global Britain, et cetera, et cetera. So what, what exactly does that mean in a, in a sense that we can make understandable to readers? Um, I know it's also not covered by this, but I think there's also, you know, my job is basically now dominated about writing about inflation. And, and so far, the narrative is very much around energy prices and global shocks and, you know, supply side mm. issues. Mm. There's a, there, I think there's now more of a concern about the sterling element, um, what the exchange rate means for our longer term inflation dynamics, whether the fact that, you know, the US is tightening monetary policy means that actually it's quite bad for sterling, that depreciation. And then the broader issues, which are kind of covered, not really about FDI, the kindness of strangers, these kind of latent questions which some people in the financial markets, I think, now are spending a bit more time on to judge. And I think this will also make a really useful contribution to, you know, a foreign investor's view on where the UK has headed and what it's been doing. So those are my couple of takeaways and a few questions for you guys. Great. Thank you very much indeed. We're going to come back to, um, we should definitely come back to uh, FDI, because it's another thing that hasn't behaved as people were uh, thinking. And we should come back to this whole uh, 
inflation slash sterling uh, side of it, which is um, relevant even if it's not covered um, in here. Right, so some people were talking about Brexit even when it was uh, harder than it is today. Uh, I definitely haven't been silent on it, despite people claiming so. So come on, don't be silent. What do you reckon? Well, I mean, first, it's always a pleasure to be the sort of sacrificial political scientists on a panel about economics. Uh, but we I mean, no sacrifices. <laughs> I mean, the one thing I would say is that if I can read this report and enjoy it, then anyone can. It is a really, really good report. So, I mean, firstly, congratulations. It's really interesting. I mean, obviously, I didn't read the annexes because I don't understand them. But I mean, uh, still time. <laughs> I mean, several things to say, I suppose. Firstly, it's worth just reminding ourselves that this is a moving target. Uh, so with fisheries, we're meant to renegotiate our fisheries quotas. There is, in theory, a review of the TCA coming up. And of course, the spat over the protocol means we might not even have the TCA. Uh, so things can change very, very quickly. Thanks for that. Uh, well, no, it's just... But I'm doing mean, it again. But, <laughs> but, but I mean, at some point, we do need to start thinking, I think, of, you know, if we have a change of government and a government that brings in an SPS agreement and maybe greater labour mobility and maybe greater recognition of qualifications, does that make a difference? I mean, we need to start. Mm -hmm. I mean, as Marion said, people are starting to think about how you deal with this now. There was that Ian Martin piece in The Times. You know, what, what you can do to make this work better and I think we need to start thinking about that. But on the report itself, I've got uh, three comments and three questions. I mean, the first comment is, it's very brave. I was saying to Torsten before we started that if we'd written this report, we'd have hedged it an awful lot more. Uh, we'd have been a lot more cowardly in the language we'd use. And I suppose half comment, half question is, surely we're talking about productivity and wage growth foregone. Uh, I mean, there are points in the thing where it says, it sort of hints that productivity and wage growth are going to be lower. And I sort of think you can't really say that, can you? Because it depends on a whole load of other things. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute, because this question of foregone is politically and in terms of public opinion, very, very tricky. Second thing, I know this is about trade, but you can't definitively talk about Brexit without talking about regulation and immigration because there are two obvious areas where uh, Brexit allows us to do things we couldn't do. And it is at least conceivable that a new immigration policy boosts productivity if we genuinely do get the... I mean, you know, you, you've always got to take the government rhetoric with a pinch of salt, but if we genuinely do start getting the brightest and the best more easily than in the past from the rest of the world, that has productivity implications. As to, and again, this is a leap of faith, would more effective regulation than you see in the European Union? Now, this is very complicated, obviously, because A, you've got to believe that we're capable of doing it better, which might be a leap of faith. And B, you've got to bear in mind that even if we do it better, if we do it differently, there are significant trade costs involved with divergence. So GDPR, I mean, you know, GDPR is clunky and I'd rather not have to click something about cookies every single time. But if you get rid of bits of it and we lose adequacy, there's a trade-off in terms of... Third thing is uh, more about the, the politics. Uh, it was very interesting that the slide that you showed about levelling up and it would have not escaped anyone's uh, notice that the three areas that do least badly out of this are the three areas that most voted most strongly remain in the referendum, which I think was London, Northern Ireland and Scotland. But I think one of the things that Brexit has done, and we shouldn't overlook this, is it totally changed the nature of our political debate. Uh, and the counterfactual to Brexit isn't just no Brexit, the counterfactual to Brexit is Cameron and Osborne in power forever. Uh, well, for, for, a, for a significant for period time. of time. And if you're thinking about levelling up an inequality, that, that's the counterfactual. And I suppose the question we have to ask ourselves is, inequality was hardly a priority of 
that regime. It is at least rhetorically now a political priority of all political parties. And again, we might have legitimate doubts about their ability to deliver, but I think the way in which our politics has shifted and the way, therefore, in which political priorities might shift, I think, has to be taken into account when when talking about uh, these things. And then questions. Firstly, it's very, very interesting that you seem to take issue with the paper that uh, Thomas Samson did recently, where he said that the, the decrease in trading relationships is because of SME exit from the export market. And you seem to be saying, actually, it's not that simple because this is more a question of trade being restructured, that we send it to a single point and we leave it to distributors there to send to the rest of the EU. Uh, a, is that a robust finding? And B, what are its broader implications? What, what are the implications of your findings as opposed to Thomas's? Because actually Thomas didn't talk about what this exit of the SMEs might, might mean for our economy in general. The second is this point about sticky trade. And the one thing that was a bit unclear to me from the report is there's a wonderful factoid in this, which says 60% of the, relation, of the trading relationships in this uh, UK-EU relationships are relationships that have been there since the 1960s. Part of that made me think, well, if they were there pre-membership, then they'll persist post-membership. Maybe that's just very, very simplistic. But secondly, do you expect, even though there hasn't been that impact on exports to date, that over time firms will adjust and you will see a fall in exports over time? And and the third question, I suppose, is about what, what Marion said about, you know, maybe we can find safe ground to have a debate. I mean, it's a nice idea. I'm, I'm sceptical. But I mean, it does strike me that the economic implications of the economic problems caused by Brexit are compounded by the crass unwillingness of government to acknowledge them. Uh, you know, it's been the elephant in the room in so many statements by the Chancellor, where you have an OBR document sitting alongside him that says Brexit, 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 uh, and the Chancellor refuses to mention it. How do we have that debate, I suppose, is the question. I don't expect you to have the answer to this, but it's something we should be talking about. How do we have a rational debate about Brexit without it degenerating into the sort of, you know, polarised debate that we've seen for far, far too long? And the final thing, and this is something that increasingly fascinates me, is the sort of political economy of this, which is at what point do the economic outcomes of Brexit translate into political and public opinion effects? Because it seems to me that transmission has been very, very slow. And it's been very, very slow for a number of good reasons. COVID, you know, Ukraine, you can always blame it on something else. But is there a sense now that that is changing and that people are, as sort of Marion hinted at, starting to pinpoint those links between Brexit and some of these economic outcomes? And do we think, therefore, that the political debate around this will change? That's a hard one to finish on, and definitely a question for you, not for us. But uh, yeah, thank you very much indeed. The, um, right. OK, we've got loads of great questions online, and we've had loads of great questions from the panellists. So I wanna, I'm going to start on the latter. But before we do that, let's just put up the first online poll. The, um, it's hashtag Brexit Britain for those that want to go and vote on the poll, which is basically, look, this is meant to be a bit of self-reflection, because I think all of us should have a bit of self-reflection over the last six years about what we were right and wrong about. So it has the impact of Brexit... Again, we're focusing here on the economic space. Mm -hmm. There are lots of other issues that uh, matter. Lots of people would say they didn't think it was ever going to happen, and it did, so it was bigger um, in terms of public trust in the political process and the rest. But let's focus just on the economics. Bigger than expected, small than expected, or are you an absolute genius and as exactly as expected? If you're in the last camp, 
I just ask you to pause before voting for it. <laughs> I'm not saying you're definitely, uh, you might be right. It was exactly as you expected, it's possible. But as you know, there's a 0.0001% chance. So, you know, just have a pause, a little bit of self-reflection uh, and then vote away. Right, while you all vote on that, let's just dig into some of these uh, issues. Dolly, I can see that some of you have already voted for uh, it being exactly as you expected. So you don't listen to a word I say, which is you know, a bit depressing for some of us. Our self-worth is being... Right, let's go through some of these. So some of these are specific That'll questions. That'll be Porter sitting in the office. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> voting to several times. I totally yeah. got it right. Nailed it. <laughs> right. Uh, so let's touch on a number of these um, uh, issues that have gone up. So easy ones. Um, so on like lower versus foregone mm -hmm. productivity growth. So yeah, so all of this is against a counterfactual of... Uh, other lots of other things going mm -hmm. on, and as you say, we hope that the long term the long term trend shouldn't be lower productivity, although mm -hmm. we're trying quite hard at times to get to that. But broadly, this is about foregone or lower than it would otherwise have been, and that applies on uh, almost all metrics. Mm -hmm. When we talk of some of the absolute changes in trade, are big enough to be getting to um, mm -hmm. actual levels being lower mm -hmm. right but then um, but on most other metrics we we're basic to yeah all gone. i mean we've had pretty slow real wage growth so <laughs> <laughs> that's true well, when we'll you're, well, okay so when <laughs> things are nearer zero then a small yeah. bit of change around it is more yeah. likely yeah. to knock yeah. you below zero but you're right we should think about yeah, this in terms of foregone. Foregone. we shouldn't yeah. think about it in terms of uh, absolute um absolute levels the um uh, I think the other stuff that matters, so migration and regulation, so there's, a, there's another paper in this series covering migration. Our view on that is it is a quite a big change to the regime. Mm -hmm. It's quite a big change for some sectors. And mm -hmm. we should probably come back to the agricultural sector overlap between migration policy and trade policy in a bit because they're yeah. pushing in totally opposite directions to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not sure we've quite clocked that in our decision-making uh, processes. Um, uh, yeah, but, but on migration, our view which again, upset everybody, is that basically the, the massively pro-migration people and the like end migration people are all overdoing how big the economic effects are mm -hmm. of that. It's not massively material. It changes the size of your overall economy, but it doesn't massively change your productivity. It doesn't massively change your wages. Um, but, you know, that's a controversial view. But that'll be our, um, our take, um, take on it. Let, let's open up... Um, uh, sorry, Gordon, do you want to come in? No, I was going to say something incredibly naive, so I'm not going to say it. Oh, oh, oh. What? It's a safe space for you. This is a safe space. <laughs> well, I mean, just always say, we've got, we're calming everything down. We've got some data. There's no, these guys are very nice. Just on Go. the surface, if you're replacing, I mean, this is embarrassing. If, if you're replacing a Romanian fruit picker with an Indian nuclear scientist, and that, that is what we call the batting the average net, effect. Yeah. That, right. will, that could raise productivity a bit, yeah. I mean, that is the net effect of yeah. the immigration changes. All right, okay. That could, the, um, otherwise, I... I think that is the intended effect. We, I think we can with confidence say that is the intended effect. Yeah. It's also probably my expected effect. I don't think we know yet actually whether that is what's happening. We're seeing quite a lot of change coming through at once and the <laughs> volume of migration definitely isn't doing what lots of people expected either. So I think we should wait and see. Uh, that's my very bold um, uh, uh, take on, um, on that. Right, let's do FDI because you raised that, that is, and someone has asked that on slides. So we didn't cover FDI in the slides. No. Everybody said FDI would tank after Brexit. Yeah. Well, so yeah, in the report, we, we do look at FDI um, uh, in that kind of phase one. So when we see business investment declining, what's happening to foreign foreign investment. Um, and actually we, we show it as, you know, 
UK foreign direct investment as a percentage of, of the kind of total inflows that are going into the EU. Um, and you basically see, I mean, inflows into the UK as a share of kind of global inflows have been on quite a long period of decline that definitely like predates um, Brexit. Um, but when you look at just kind of the, the pre-referendum um, sort of 2015 um, share um, relative to EU um, uh, FDI inflows and then kind of the, the latest data, uh, the FDI to the UK is actually higher than it was kind of pre-referendum. So um, I just... There's, a, there's still quite like a lively debate around what the impact has been on FDI and some are kind of yeah pointing to quite a big impact. Um, I think our kind of assessment looking at looking at that data and looking across the, the inflows across countries is that um, in 2021 especially you, you see that kind of uptick in, in kind of the share of Europe's um, foreign direct investment that's going to the UK, which is kind of pretty much exactly the opposite of, of what we might have expected, um, as you say. And there is a bit of a I think also I, I've asked uh, asked a lot of talked to people in the financial markets about this, and there is the macro view that Britain is still institutionally robust, open, competitive mm -hmm. economy. And if that FDI wasn't going to the UK, where is it going to go? And there's no obvious area where you could say there are you know uh, comparable or even you know better or more attractive places. Yeah. So I think there is a stickiness about it. And then the, I guess I mean in terms of the shares of guilt that held by foreigners, yeah, we're basically heading for a quite a reasonable crash in lots of financial assets. So there's still a safety and a haven aspect. So I think there have been countervailing factors, which mean that I guess that exodus hasn't happened. It, ironically, what it seems to do is just raise the alarm about when it actually will happen. It's going to be really bad and it will compound everything that already is really bad. So, you know, it is one of those, it plays, it, it, depending on who you ask, it plays in, in different ways about what this, what this means. Yeah. I think it is worth us like, so this and the exports thing are in some ways similar, okay? So if we look, again, self-reflection, people look back what we were, people were saying before the 2016 referendum. A lot of it was slightly focused on very large, quite specific effects on the direct economic, so the direct trade with the EU, mm. right? Or it was on FDI itself. Being, mm. So it's the things that seemed obviously like the big thing. And I think really what we're seeing here is that the effect is just more diffuse. So FDI hasn't massively fallen insofar as we like our measures of FDI, which there are all kinds of problems with, but they definitely haven't seen it tanking like some people predicted. Mm. Yeah. But overall investment in the UK economy has been a disaster, right? Yeah. So investment levels tank and basically no growth at all in the three years after the referendum mm -hmm. and COVID obviously then absolutely smashes them and our recovery from it is slow. We're still, although GDP is back to where it was before the pandemic, private sector investment still not got back to anywhere near where it was before the pandemic. So the actual investment by British firms is really bad. It's definitely been affected by Brexit. It just hasn't come through the FDI channel in the way that lots of people focus. And similarly on trade, you can't see really strong effects coming through on the relative EU uh, trade, but you can see really strong effects coming through on all trade. Uh, and, the, and I think you know, we, it's just really important to be like, okay, so maybe we were, people were too focused on the things that seemed like the obvious narrow lever rather than thinking bigger picture about what are you doing to the nature of your economy, more, more about how uncertainty affects rather than particular policy changes okay. feed through over time. I think are good lessons for, uh, for all of us. Right, let's bring up the results of the poll and see how many of you were 100% confident in your previous uh, judgments. Dun, dun, dun. 30% of you. Come on, guys. It's ridiculous. Uh, okay. Uh, so there you go. But on balance, okay, so we are, if we put exactly as you expected, basically into the people thought it was quite big and it had been big at the, um, but broadly, small, now that is interesting, small than you expected. 
I'm in, I'm in the, let's go through the panel. I'm in the bigger than I expected because I didn't expect the wider effect on our openness and our competitiveness with non-EU countries to come through. What do you reckon? You can't go for the last one, so this is totally binary. I mean, well, I mean, bigger than I expected in the sense that I had very little sense of the degree to which this would change our country and our debates and swirl around for seven years and That's dominate true. everything else. So in that sense, you know, on everything. coming from my discipline, yeah. the, the, it's been far, far bigger. But actually, you know, on the basis of the report, in terms of what we have seen today, it's perfectly legitimate to say smaller than expected, isn't it? Because that key thing, our levels of trade with the European Union. On that metric, yes. Yeah, on that metric. Which is pretty key. Yeah, on the absolute productivity here and others, I think. But that's down the line, isn't it? Uh, yeah, a lot of it's underway. Like okay. that, that investment stuff, that yeah, the, right. uh, the broader trade stuff's happening. Anyway, go on, Marie. It's a safe space, as I said. I think I, I agree with 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 Anand that I only arrived in the UK a couple of months ago, and everyone here wants me to talk about Brexit. I spent five years in the EU, and nobody ever asked me to speak about Brexit. Mm. I mean, so there is obviously a difference, but that's. Not I mean, we are the people doing the Brexit. Of course, we're the, <laughs> we're, the, we're the ones Brexiting, <laughs> rather than you know. I think initially it was like, please explain to us what's happening in this country, and then after that it was like, we just we, make it go we've away. Got, we, yeah, they're in the basket with Switzerland. There's annoying things you don't want to talk about. But I think I'm in the. That's not a bad basket to be. I think I'm still in the bigger. Oh, well, Swiss, we're not getting into Switzerland. We're British people. Uh, yeah. Focus on our problem. Yeah. Right, um, I think I, I'm still bigger than expected given the timing of the TCA and then we're still pretty much in the early runs of this. So I would still say a little bit bigger. Okay. So, so we can, you can you make discernible calls already. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, bigger than expected. When you look at that kind of scale of openness and the scale of impact on investment, um, it's been pretty, pretty massive. Um, Okay, so basically what we're saying is you're all anti-democratic because public <laughs> told us that. Anyway, but the, um, right, let's go to, I want one clear benefit, economic benefit uh, from Brexit so far is a question from an anonymous author. Uh, they've maybe meant pejoratively, but rather than taking it pejoratively, let's have one for everyone. So I'm going to go first because that's easier than you are, because you're all stuffed after me. Really. So um, the public wanted a change in the migration regime. They've got a change in the migration regime, and it broadly looks like what the public wanted. Done. Benefit. Go. We were discussing in the office the other day that whenever you get an anonymous question, it's from a civil servant. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> Give the civil service their answer. These people have got to run the country. It's hard enough for them. Uh, I think the way I've got quite a lot of anonymous questions, by the way. So that's like, <laughs> in fact, way too many. Guys, put your names Apologies. down. Apologies. Like, <laughs> I, th I think what I said before, I think the fact that we are now thinking about levels of regional inequality yeah, in good. a sustained way, in a way we just could have been doing for 30 years but haven't been doing, is, you know. Sorry. And I think that there are layers to that. It's quite interesting, isn't it? One layer is that Brexit has changed the nature of the debate because from Theresa May is just about managing to levelling up, that's yeah. become a priority. The second thing, which is more impactful, I think, is that a lot of those places that were on the receiving end of this inequality have become marginal seats, which they weren't beforehand. You think about, you know, being a marginal seat is the best thing you can do in terms of getting the interest of policymakers, as Wakefield is. You may or may not want it, but we'll get it to you. You'll get a lot more door knocking in that world. Now, there's a long way between this and actual delivery, but I think the fact that we're talking about it and the fact that we're thinking about it is important. Very good. Clear and obvious sounds like uh, something from VAR, so I don't know if I'm, I'm the referee and if I'm, you know, I think I... VAR, it'll take about half an hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll wait for the answers in a bit. But I, I agree with Anand. And also, you know, it's given our economic policy makers their agency back because mm. for a long time they said, well, I can't really do much about this. 
Um, and you know, in the in the in the supply side shocks that have happened, Ukraine, the pandemic, Brexit. Um, you know, you said that when it, when are we going to have it? When is it going to translate into some of our public opinion? Well, it's the one area where the chancellor can say there are choices to be made. You know, you can put your hands up when it comes to Russia and the pandemic to some degree, um, yeah. but. Brexit is something that if you want to change the course of it or try and lessen the impacts or, or take another regulatory, you know, uh, position, you can do. And I think voters are trying, I think they understand that, that when we tell them the economy has gone through this triple shock, there's one of the categories is a different type, is of a different type of nature and can demand a different type mm. of political response. And to be honest, I did economics reporting before Brexit and it was pretty boring. We only talked about monetary policy at that point. It was QE yeah. and, and, and that's the Which only years are we talking about? Oh, in the mid two. Um, we're talking about pre. So between about quite a lot 20, going on. Between about <laughs> 2012, you know, of course there was the austerity debate, but that was a very one-sided debate. Yeah, I think now right. that we have a more, you know, there's just room for a bit more heterodox opinion about economics. What matters? Very good. Of course, historically, in, in in some member states, the reason why there was support for European integration was precisely because. It took autonomy away from domestic yes. policymakers yeah, who weren't trusted. That's a huge part of yeah. um, why Italy is one of the yeah. most pro-EU countries, yeah. despite having you know not really suffered, no, well, got too many benefits. But yes, because they would like clever, Rather Brussels than Rome. Clever, yeah, clever bureaucratic people to, yeah. to take their decisions for them. We should never do that. Um, right. The, um, uh, Sophie, do you want to offer us one? It's about fair going third. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just play to what I hope is our audience and say that you can pursue new trade agreements, and the UK has done that successfully with. Uh, well, that's very nice to all the, all the civil yeah, servants working well, there. Keep it up, guys. Um, those agreements. Yeah, I mean, I'll pass work. Sign them, sign them, sign them. It's not going to offset the, the fall in trade openness, but you know, it's good to, <laughs> okay, so good to be out there. You were being nice to them for a second. I know, sorry. Well, what, since you've raised that, okay, let's quickly do that, because there is there's a few questions here. I won't bring them all up, but the few questions which basically get to. Can we just go, here you go, here's an example, also anonymous, definitely from a civil servant. Uh, the, um, can we just go around signing this, can we get on this openness question, so let's forget the sectoral stuff, forget everything else, just sign them, sign them, sign them. Sophie. Is that me? Yeah. Um, I mean, so, so we had some past work that kind of looks at this question a little bit, um, and our judgment is basically no. Um, the reason is, you know, the U EU makes up a huge proportion of, of UK trade and the, the nature of, of the EU is just so deep in, in, in kind of what it does to uh, to liberalise trade. Um, you know, the single market for services is just kind of unparalleled in any free trade agreement that's been signed. Um, so even with kind of what are, you know, very deep normal free trade agreements um, out there, you're, you're doing a very small kind of share of that of that liberalisation that you get with okay. the EU, and you're not going to get it with anywhere near as much trade. But still get, still get on with doing something, guys. Right, now, uh, Northern Ireland, and then I want to move on to the structural side of things. So why don't you take this one? And then, so there's a few questions on Northern Ireland. They're mainly coming at this from a look, the long-term structural stuff, because this model does allow us to differentiate the regions and yeah. to put to take into account the different relationships to a degree yeah. uh, that Northern Ireland finds itself in versus um, uh, the EU. But we shouldn't, obviously, this question is getting at the economic mm -hmm. performance. There are other issues to do with Northern Ireland protocol. I hear politics as a thing. Uh, so what do you reckon? I think quite possibly. I don't, I'm not convinced we have the data to be absolutely certain, but I think you know, if you if you look at the differential economic performance, you think, hmm, what is structurally different between Northern Ireland and Great Britain? Then obviously single market membership is a big thing. And actually, even if you think back to the fuel shortages uh, last September and October, Northern Ireland was the only country that remained green mm. throughout. And so, yeah, there is a fundamental difference there. Why isn't this more widely acknowledged? Well, well politics in it. I mean, uh, the government doesn't want to acknowledge that. The unionists don't want to acknowledge that. If you listen to Northern Ireland businesses, they are. 
talking about it. I mean, the one thing I would say that is a real source of concern for me about Northern Ireland is that you get all this polling from Northern Ireland that shows a majority of people sort of are relatively happy with the protocol uh, because they think it's being applied and it's not. Uh, and that actually you're, you're still living through a period of, of, of grace periods where actually there really is the best of both worlds in Northern Ireland in the sense that very, very few of the sort of impediments to trade between GB and NI are being implemented by the UK government and you've still got access to the single market. If the protocol were to work anything like properly, it would be different to this. Yeah, exactly. And, think- and whatever you think about the economics, you know, there is a big political thing about having put a border in part of the UK. And that is a reasonable thing for some people to have very strong views about. No, no, absolutely. I mean, it is, you know, it is hard to exaggerate the degree to which this is weird, you know, (laughs) that you have these checks inside a country. It'd be interesting to see the the GDP per capita differentials between the North and the South. I was in Ireland at the weekend and everyone wants to talk about reunification, which was definitely not the case even a couple of years Mm. ago. And Mm. whether the, you know, comparatively stronger performance of Northern Ireland might make the economic cases for reunification, or at least in the South, you know, the fact that they'll probably have to accept some sort of transfer union a little bit better if Northern Ireland becomes a booming part of, the only booming part of GB, we might have to, might be lost. There's quite, we've got a very, 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 very long way to go before we are. Although I have to say, not on well-being. They're very perky in Northern Ireland for reasons everyone, I've never done. everyone tells me it's great. They're really perky, but GDP per capita, don't worry. They're nowhere near any form of like catch-up in terms of uh, uh, the gap with the South or the gap with the rest of the um, uh, the UK for lots of obvious um, longer-term reasons. Right. I thought we should just briefly, you raise the inflation sterling challenge. And this is a bit complicated. So there's some things we definitely know. Okay, obviously, which is, we can see what happened immediately after the referendum, right? I think, which was sterling depreciated, I think you said 12% in the your Yeah. 10 to 12%. A year as, after. As the year after effect, yeah, on, the, on a weighted basket of currency. So serious depreciation, higher inflation. At that point, we thought 3% inflation was high. Uh, little did we know uh, what was coming. We thought 3% was high, real wages fell for the years after the referendum, at the same time as investment is plateauing there, although it picks up by 2019. Again, so we, we know effects like that happen, and we've learned over the last 15 years that the way countries like ours often get poorer is via a depreciation, right? We're just recognising lower incomes in the longer term by the pound being less valuable relative to other currencies. That's how that's the mechanism by which we become poorer. I think there is a specific thing which in the olden days people would have focused on but aren't big parts of public policy debates in Britain. But if you were like talking to the IMF about Britain, right, in the, in the next decades, not like year to year, one thing that comes out is, so we're, we're now part of a smaller market, but we're a country that does a lot of financial services work, big capital flows in mm-hmm. lots of directions. Um, and, and there are questions about the level of our currency volatility compared to some to other countries. One aspect of that is it can make monetary policymakers position more difficult. I mean, you know, if the Fed stays significantly um, uh, tightening significantly quicker than us, it is going to have that effect. And we don't operate independent monetary policies between countries in the real world. Um, so I think that is an important point to raise. Then, but the longer term question isn't that. It's that we're, uh, this, is, this is now quite a volatile issue for us. And we should think about the effects on our living standards. Has any of the soon. export resilience been linked to sterling? Can you disaggregate? People didn't talk about it. Um, with the EU versus non-EU? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we can look at the you can look at the difference in the kind of depreciation against the euro versus mm-hmm. other exchange rates, but I don't think it's explaining not not the scale of 
lack of response. Also, remember, we've depreciated around the whole, we've depreciated versus like the whole world. Okay, and our overall level of openness is coming down yeah. on imports and exports. So yeah. I think it'd be hard to see it as like, but I mean, it must have some role because it's large enough. Yeah. Some but what, I mean, there is some research that shows what was interesting when that depreciation happened, the exports didn't respond as, you, as you'd expect because there were no, no new trade barriers when depreciation happened originally. So we should have become more competitive and we should have been exporting more. Um, and like a lot of the kind of explanation for that is that, you know, the, the, the integrated global supply chains mean mm. that the, the prices um, of imports were going up and that was reducing competitiveness and the, the, the effects were almost just kind of netting each other out. So we can't do a kind of strategy that some other countries do of you know deliberately depreciating your exchange rates kind of um, boost exports because it just doesn't seem to work for the UK. I mean it's worth saying wage stagnation happens for a number of reasons one of which is political choice and one of the reasons why you know the, this this is going to have real political implications is we've had wage stagnation for absolutely bloody ages yep. in this country. Yeah mm. we have indeed. Right I, I want to move us to the future a bit I want to bring two questions up together which all get to like, okay, thinking ahead, let's do trade policy first. So thinking ahead on trade, what should we actually be thinking about? So first of all, from Patrick Flynn, what I'm having a name, the, um, uh, if it's the Patrick Flynn, if we can bring it up, here we go. The, um, so the, um, basically, you can see the question, but basically, what is the grand plan? Okay, and how much of that is about the rest of the world? The, um, we can we've touched elsewhere on some of the. There's quite big trade discussions happening to do with India and some other countries, maybe more than some of us expected. And then Paul War uh, uh, asks, um, "What do we actually do?" So you've raised this. Basically, are people going to start talking about changes to the uh, TCA? And you raised some of the ways in which you could do that. But how much appetite do we think that there really is for that? Let's have our go, our best go about future gazing on what politics is going to. Uh, where that's going to take us. So who wants to take that first, the future? Mm -hmm. What's going to happen? I mean, Paul knows me well enough to know I can't do ought to, but might be. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can see the sense in an SPS agreement. I've never understood the rule. Give everyone a reminder of what one is before. So an agreement around things like uh, veterinary standards and standards for food imports and things like that. That's a large part of the problem on the Northern Ireland border. It's a large part of the problem on the GBEU border. I've never got the very principled objection to this as a massive sort of imposition on our sovereignty. I don't think the people of Stoke would be out on the street because we'd signed an SPS agreement. But it, that, that, I think, is a relatively easy way to deal with a significant amount of disruption. Uh, other things that you know, we can think about and that some people have suggested is more work on mutual recognition of qualifications. Uh, whether or not we want to revisit the decision not to uh, allow, not to recognise EU identity cards. Peter Foster at the FT has written quite a few interesting pieces on the absolute car crash that is the school's visit industry in the UK oh, yeah. because schools from the EU aren't visiting because kids tend to have identity cards and not passports. Uh, and then maybe... I mean, not this government, I don't think, but a future government might think about mobility packages with the EU that make it easier for service providers to go and ply their trade inside the European Union. Uh, I just don't think we know yet the full impact of Brexit on service providers, lawyers or accountants or even, you know, academics. I mean, one of my favourite stories about the complications of post Brexit sort of academia is, you know, even Catherine Barnard who is an EU lawyer, was uncertain which forms she had to sign to go and give a paid course 
in the EU. And if she can't figure out the forms, then no one There's on Earth... There's two possible conclusions from that. <laughs> OK, uh, none of them are about Catherine personally. Uh, so uh, one is... So whenever I meet anyone right nowadays who could plausibly work in a business that exports to the EU, I always ask them what's actually happening to you, right? Mm -hmm. Lots of them are in that bucket, yeah. which is they don't really know. They're basically carrying on mm -hmm. as they were, waiting to see if anybody shouts bluntly. Mm -hmm. right? Those are the non-regulated services. Mm -hmm. And then everybody in regulated services, by which we basically mean accountants, law well, mainly we mean lawyers and bankers, but a bit of a wider finance sector. And a bit. There is like, oh my God, I'm like spending all my time on this other stuff. And I think, I think we haven't done enough to split apart those two bits of service, yep. right? To know how much is, how much do we, we're definitely going to see change in the regulated sectors, okay? They're definitely going to change. On the unregulated sectors, I think we probably talk too, like the assumption that because you're not in the single market, it will be huge change, I think does slightly miss how much just happens by somebody getting on a plane mm -hmm. and none of it ever goes through. So like, and lots of you can see, I'll give you an example, um, architects opening mm -hmm. a post box in Paris, but nothing else has changed. Right? They've literally got a literal post box, but they just invoice from here, the work is done from here. Mm -hmm. so I, and I don't think we have a good handle on how those different things are going to play out. So it's not just that Catherine's confused, I think like substantively, yeah. loads, Sorry, people, loads of people are going to give that course and aren't worrying about the forms, they're just going and giving the course invoicing, the trade's happening anyway, basically. Until some of those people start getting that stamp in their passports that say they've breached immigration rules. So when, if that kind of thing starts happening, then yes, we'll be in a world of, yeah. uh, then, then it will all, uh, it will all um, change. What's going to happen? Well, it's a two-way negotiation, these types of things. And what? We yeah, don't get I to know, decide. No, we don't. There's somebody else sitting around the table. And I think... Someone needs to sort that. I, I, think, I think the relationship is really at an idea. And, and mm -hmm. I think on both sides, it requires a change in, in personnel because of the mistrust is so bad. So I think, I think that can happen through a different type of Tory government or a completely, you know, a non-Tory government, a Labour government. Um, the EU also has elections in 2024, and I think if the current batch of leaders who have had to deal with the Brits were not around, that would also be quite helpful. I think the things that that, that, that Anand <laughs> the said, people that have met the Brits need to go away is basically your. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, the, I wouldn't like. Um, Maybe because it's the nature of the way that the, we were reporting on the negotiations, but some of the personal animus yeah. against various figures. Okay, come on, let's have that. We want some gossip. This will be very. Yeah, serious. I mean, von der Leyen, for example. I saw yeah. she. I saw her people in Davos, and you know, I asked them who they met, and and they were like, "Well, we've got a. a sh we're not meeting people on the shit list, which is the Brits and the and the Swiss." Right. So like right. even even a kind of cursory in these international forum having any type of photo opportunity with the Brits, like they're fully persona non grata. It's bad. Right. And it's at the point where the leadership of the European Union does not deal with the Brits. They have a special section and a commissioner who handles them and it is not going to touch the top table. And, and if we're talking about changes to the agreement, it requires the political yeah. will of the top table to get involved. So if we're in a world where people where von der Leyen is not commission president and somebody else is also running the council, I think it's helpful. I think it's I wouldn't underestimate how helpful that would be. Um, and what that is a bit depressing because we are lovely. <laughs> and, you know, they should like us. They should like us, I, I think. Mean, you're, you know, we're nice, yeah. they, should like, yeah, they should like us. Um, uh, so we need to sort that out. And the one issue I, I would raise is financial services. So I think, you know, yeah. other parts that can be done, you know, mm -hmm. things you mentioned, the choices can be made. We're not get, probably not getting passport. We're not getting passporting back. We are definitely we're not getting definitely passport. And we're not probably going to get equivalent. So... And even if there is this massive sea change, I think, in, in, in the relationship. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that's still... So you think even when we're not, when we're off the shit list, yeah. we won't be able to op open up some of the equivalence discussions? 
You think that's the line, basically? I mean, equivalence, because of the unilateral nature of it, I don't. I think it's really difficult for any government on this side to sort of accept the conditions under which it comes. I mean, this, talking about the Swiss, they've mm. had this sort of Damocles hanging over their head. It actually fell, and they, they, you know, they, they got booted out, um, as it were. And I think the precedent would be pretty high. I mean, I think if the Brits came begging and, you know, really, you know, were like, it's okay, we'll, we'll take everything, we'll be the rule takers, and that's fine then they might be able to no. start a conversation, but I just don't okay. see it happening. Right, okay, well, thanks for getting I mean, From a self-interested point of view, the other thing, of course, is Horizon, which is being held hostage. Yeah. All right, you've got loads of money. <laughs> you don't need any more money. <laughs> you know what, it, seriously, it's bad for, it's bad for kind of competition. Of the Thank you, my colleagues. Okay, well, all right, but everyone's, you know, there's, there's hard times. Right, okay, that's the future. Hopefully we answered your question-ish, Paul, which is basically you might get some food stuff. I want to come to this stuff <laughs> on, I want to come to these, like, longer-term structure effects, okay? So there was a lot of, there was quite a lot around this when you think about um, how the Brexit debate unfolded, which was, I'm going to give a number of elements to it, right? So you obviously had a, let's, let's do uh, manufacturing services and primary industries, right, broadly, and try to think about them in turn, although obviously uh, there's some significant interaction, but let's try not to get into that because it will get too complicated, right? So, man, so a lot of what people wanted before uh, the referendum, and actually some people who had voted remain but thought there might be upsides, silver linings maybe to Brexit afterwards. So Martin Sambo from the FT is my best example of this, said, look, um, okay, you know, less openness is a bad idea because we're going to be poorer, but insofar as because of freedom of movement, what people want to get rid of freedom of movement and the rest, our change in trade will be worse for services because we're leaving the most integrated service market in the world. Uh, but signing a, a, an FDA, because he was basically right about the long-term outcome of the trade agreements, right? So the relative increase in um, trade frictions is higher for services than for goods, okay, which is basically our argument. And that that would be a good thing because it will rebalance us slightly towards manufacturing. Uh, and, that, and manufacturing tends to be more, more geographically spread than service exports, which mm -hmm. is true. So it would help us with some of our economic geography problems. That was, that, was his, that was his silver lining to Brexit. I didn't like it, but it will help on levelling up was basically his... Uh, pitch. Now, the results in what, what we're showing today show you don't get that. You don't mm. get a big shift back towards manufacturing for the economy as a whole, but you do get some really big shifts within the manufacturing sector. So I think we should just get specific. So which ones grow? Because some are really big growth areas. Yeah. So the biggest, the biggest kind of growing manufacturing sector is sort of food and beverages manufacturing. Um, based on our assessment. Um, Important lesson, by the way, people. Whenever everyone says the word manufacturing, they have in their heads people making mm. kit, right? Our manufacturing is making booze. It's all about the whiskey, okay? So, like, whenever... And we're doing really well at it, by the way. The, um, but, like, it's really weird. Like, people... I think, I, think, I think booze exports are our second biggest export after banking. At least, is that true? Is that true? Uh, Everyone's shaking their heads at me. I think so. There, okay, there's a lot of it going on, okay, people. I think it was true 40 years ago, and it's true today. We're like consistently good at the booze. So, we're gonna, but this isn't the booze. Yeah. This is about we're not going to we're not going to sell more booze abroad because of this. This is like this is more about yeah, selling so, to Brits. Yes. So we get we at the moment or kind of before Brexit, we had a lot of imports of this kind of manufactured food products coming from specifically the EU. And so, so what this, is this is this like what we is this bacon? What are we <laughs> cheese? Cheese. Yeah. So we're going to produce more cheese. I mean, I'm actually a big fan of cheddar, so that's fine. <laughs> okay. So more cheese. The um, okay. Uh, and 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 then yeah, um, sort of processed meats. Um, I, by that I don't mean the kind of really processed sort of 
TV dinner type meats, but just not, you know, actual sheeps moving over the border. Um, okay, right. Okay, this is heading into <laughs> heading into dangerous territory. There are now sheeps and borders getting involved. Right. Okay. So we've got we've got more of that going on. Quite large increases of that because yep. we, British producers now step in rather than us importing it from the EU. Okay. The, um, that kind of manufacturing does tend to happen in poorer parts of the UK for labour and land price reasons. Yeah. Um, what do we lose? What shrinks in manufacturing land? Um, so. I mean, among the biggest shrinkers are um, manufacturing of kind of computers and electronics, manufacturing of chemicals, um, and these, you know, as we showed, are the kind of more productive sectors. I mean, manufacture of basic metals is in there, and that's like much lower productivity. Yeah. Um, but it is, it, it, it's just a sector that's particularly reliant on on being able to export to the EU, mm. and, and and we're kind of putting up barriers there okay. um, with you know pretty small margins to, okay. to be playing around with. Right, we're going to come on to services in a second uh, with you, but let's do a, a poll just to bring up for everyone to vote on while we are uh, in our last five minutes. So this is basically saying to you, look, what do you want us to do in the 2020s? Okay, this is, we're showing you what the data show is happening. These are obviously forced. I know no one, you know, life's not fair. He doesn't have all the options you want in life. Right, but should the priority be renegotiating the TCA? Uh, along the lines of maybe of what Ananda set out. Is it getting all those trade deals around the rest of the world that the civil servants amongst you are busy signing? India is the like immediate focus because the Americans told us to get stuffed. Should though it not be on trade? We're talking too much about trade people. Stop overestimating the impact of trade. It should instead be on domestic stuff. It should be about a big new industrial strategy uh, because in the end that has a bigger effect than the stuff. Uh, so that's like focus on productivity of our, uh, of our at a sectoral level. Or should it be the levelling up strategy, economic geography is what matters. Now, obviously, these all overlap. A sensible economic strategy would obviously bring all of these together. But, you know, which one's the most important uh, approach that we should be taking? So while people are voting on that, let's just do services. So, again, I think everyone worried slightly that we were going to be, that everyone, not everyone, the people that were anti-Brexit in the referendum said you're going to just tank our most successful sectors and that didn't there's a lot of mm -hmm. like you're going to kill the bankers and everyone else was like shame uh it may not be the most successful political argument in history mm. um it's a bit more complicated in terms of what actually looks like it could happen structurally it's not although there are big increase in trade frictions for some of those for those high value added professional service sectors they're not the ones that are really shrinking do mm -hmm. we focus too much on the bankers i mean possibly i think i still think it's very very early uh, in, in the game, it's, it's, it's too soon to say what happens to services. I mean, I'd, I'd say a couple of things. I mean, firstly, you know, Patrick Minford was honest enough to say that, you know, if we Brexit, then we can get rid of all manufacturing and, and focus on sort of high value services. And it's, it's also worth reminding us of how weird, I mean, Jill, this is Jill's point, how weird the TCA is for a net services exporter to have signed a deal that basically gives the EU everything it wants on manufacturing and gives us virtually nothing on services. The imbalance of the TCA is it just gives absolutely us what we, it, gives, it just gives us what we want on migration. Absolutely. That's yeah. the reason. No, absolutely. I mean, th there's a reason for it. But in economic terms, it's, 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 it's unusual. odd. It's unusual. Uh, and of course, the genesis of that, I suppose, was Theresa May's focus on Northern Ireland in her negotiations, which meant that it was about, all about goods rather than about services. I mean, that's where that focus comes from. But I'd, I, to be honest, I don't know the answer on services as yet. I'd be reluctant to say what the impact is because I don't think we've really felt it. So if you, who, sh who shrinks on the forward-looking modelling? So again, you, let's not get into the detailed sectoral stuff about the past because that's all messy, for, partly because of COVID and other things, but on the forward-looking modelling. Um, we've got, so basically legal and accounting is one of the, the, the big kind of 
broad losers. Um, insurance does pretty well, um, and that's because it is very non-EU focused. Um, finance, I mean, we have a couple of finance sectors, which makes it a bit um, a bit more confusing. It's a bit split. It's, it's not doing great, but it's it's not the all-time biggest losing sector, as you might expect. Okay, let's move on to big losers. Um, so let's do primary products, because they're like ludicrous big swings going on in the modelling about what happens on the uh, on the agriculture and the fisheries side of the market. Yeah. And they're in opposite directions to each other. Yeah. And this might explain a lot about... So in general, agriculture fishy places were quite pro the Brexit thing, right, on the voting patterns early on. The fishermen are really angry since, mm -hmm. and the uh, fishers, I think they're called now. Fishers? Mm. Fishers? Okay, thank you. It's lucky you guys are here. The fishers are really angry. Uh, then talk us a bit about how big the effect on fishers is, and then let's do agriculture, and let's do migration and trade separately. Yeah. So, so the fishing um, sector, we estimate, is going to fall by around 30%, as you say, relative That's to... Three zero, relative to being, 30, three zero. Um, in the EU, um, and that is a really, really substantial loss. And as you say, that is because um, the, the, the fishing sector was really relying on that kind of EU consumer market. A lot of, a lot of kind of output was, was directed towards the EU. Um, and there was a lot less competition um, you know, relative to other sectors um, from kind of the EU imports. Um, so it's sort of ability to push out EU suppliers and focus on the domestic market is is, is much smaller than than that kind of loss of, of its export market. Um, and we see basically the exact opposite for kind of like agriculture products, which is expected to be one of these growing sectors. Um, and yeah, as you say, emphasising that this is just based on what the changes to the trade arrangement, and, and we'll talk about what else is going on for agriculture. Um, so instead, you know, as we've kind of already touched on, those agricultural producers, um, just like the kind of food manufacturing producers, should be able to kind of redirect, reorientate their output towards the domestic market and away from from kind of EU exports, which were which were a less important part of their kind of business model um, to begin with, um, and they and they are you know um, slightly less um, competitive and were competing. You know, EU imports were really important. Um, uh, before Brexit um, in agriculture. Um, and I'm sure they, they will continue to be, but they now will face these kind of new, quite big barriers, as you said, without a SBS agreement, um, very big barriers facing them coming into the EU, on, into the UK. On farmers, okay, so this leave the, the fishers is like, is like a, just a, a huge, huge shock to the scale of the industry. I mean, how many people work in fisheries? 10,000, 12,000? It's quite small uh, it's, in total. Yeah, 5,000 in 2019. Okay, so the number, absolute numbers of people are quite 5, small. There's not many fisheries wow. going. Well, it's been it's been shrinking for some time. It's been shrinking for some time. I know, but the amount people pay attention to an industry bears no relationship yes. to how many people work in that industry. Yeah. It's like one of the golden rules is people often ask me about things, and I'm like, there's three people, okay, and there's a lot of people that work in supermarkets, which we've never asked about or whatever the issue is. The people there's like, anyway, let's get let's leave the fishers and let's focus on agriculture because I think this is really weird. So there's a tension here, which is, so overall we're showing the sector should get bigger, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, the sector gets bigger, we're all eating more British food, They're, that makes some people like John Redwood happy because they want more British um, uh, resilience, which means producing more at home, um, even though we're already consuming more, much more British food than we were in the 30s and all that, but let's park all of that. So the sector should be happy in aggregate, it's going to grow. The sector is in practice furious, okay? And so let's go through the reasons for that. So one might be that, okay, the trade policy might help, but the migration policy stops us actually being able to produce the stuff. Mm -hmm. And another one might, which may be, that's just the decision then, to 
take, how much do you want to let migrant labour appear mm -hmm. to let that trade policy have an effect. The other one might be just straight inside and outside a thing, which is the current farmers are upset because they can't export to the EU anymore. But farmers as a whole, who aren't the ones on TV because they don't exist yet, future farmers that might should be perky because they're going to get better. And maybe it's, an, it's just you know the current farmers having to change, but farmers overall, taking a collective aggregate view, should be perky. What do you reckon? In the EU context, farmers are the most protected clique of any part of the economy. I mean, the EU probably was created so we can have a common agricultural policy and it's still fiercely defended to this day. I'd be interested to think about bigger things about the farming sector, particularly with, with net zero and whether the government is able to maybe institute more of a change in farming practices because that the EU really can't. I mean, they've basically just said, we know you emit a lot, but frankly, no one's willing to lose, uh, you know, constituency support of farmers. So everyone is just going to ignore the fact that... I mean, we're, we're, we're going to do that. Wag. That's, what we're, that's, that's well, basically we're what like, we're doing. Mm, yeah, that's lots, what we're doing. Yeah. Lots of we're saying you should probably change, yeah. but not now. We'll talk about it. So I wonder if the disconnect is just because, you know, I mean, I know the Brits had huge problems with the cap, but um, whether actually yeah, being outside, you realise that maybe the guys on the other side have it, have it still have it better. What do you reckon? Why and they're not losing any of their rights comparatively in the EU. Farmers are just, you know, they're, they're basically chilling. I mean, one of the things I think is interesting is we're, we're, not, we're not implementing the TCA yet. So I wonder, yeah, that's true. you know, the gap between, and I wonder if we ever will. Uh, so to remind people which bit we're not implementing for those. Well, the checks, as much some, of the, as some of the checks that we should be having at the borders are not being implemented as yeah. yet. So I wonder whether actually we felt the impact on agricultural imports yet, or whether that's a treat lying in store to come. for us yeah. sort of down the line. And it strikes me that the fundamental difference between fisheries and agriculture is this, is that we we tend to export the fish we catch and import the fish we eat, exactly. which is structurally is quite problematic. Uh, because we don't like the stuff that we've got in our waters, but we do like the stuff they've got in their waters, whereas that's presumably not the case to it's such a great extent. It's just us, really. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. That's because we're an open trading nation. And we, 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 got, we, we tasted the other stuff and we <laughs> yeah. were like, the grass was greener and the fish was tasty. Yeah. Uh, right, okay. Let, we're running over time. Let's bring up the results of the poll and then closing remarks from everybody and then we should release everyone to their days. So what did you all want to do in the next decade what are you up for wanting to do uh they're broadly okay but it's not like it's not one-sided that's like the um so we'd like to renegotiate the tca as you say that's not going to happen without quite significant personnel change slash a bit of time passing when we all Ooh. like Ooh. calm down what does happen there change their vote. Don't, you can't change the vote when we brought the results up people <laughs> it's like you know when the exit polls out and they're like oh sorry someone hadn't voted yet okay stop voting for a second everyone <laughs> uh the um uh, you're not massively interested in the signing the deals around the rest of the world. Well, you know, I suppose we're doing it anyway. Uh, the, um, but yeah, but going to what you were saying, it is also changing how economic policy is being focused as an issue. It's brought attention to new things. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the curiosities um, of this is whether Brexit makes us a more European economy. That was not Patrick so. Minford's no. <laughs> uh, But it might do that. It might do that. Right, OK. The, um, that's uh, great. Thank you for your uh, opinions uh, voting at home or work or wherever you are. Right, closing remarks. Let's focus on big picture, what have we learned, been surprised about, and what should we be thinking about going forward in terms of what this means for a country trying to wrestle with making a success of the 2020s? What do you reckon? I think I'm still going to say the annoying thing that the, a lot of the things we can't make a judgment on because we're still quite very 
you know, this process is yet to run. That's I mean, what the academics are meant to I say. Know. I think, that, I mean, the issue that I would, I think I, I would like to look at, because <laughs> I think it's important for both sides, is, is whether this regulatory divergence ever happens. This is supposed mm -hmm. to be, you know, this is the thing that is celebrated on this side and most feared on the other side. What those choices are, whether it really, you know, the Brits, I think, reputation of this kind of perfidious Albion that, you know, will go off and deliberately try and, you know, make make themselves, you know, re-image the, the nation in a certain less European way. So you said, you know, far more Anglo-Saxon, I guess, mm. um, whether that actually bears out, because I can't sense any, I, I, can't, I, 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 don't, I always thought that was a slightly overhyped fear, and, and politically, I don't think the conditions are right for that to happen, so I think there will be far more attention on levelling up and, mm. and the rest than, you know, slashing regulation, becoming a low-tax, you know, all these types of things. Have we got a cunning plan? I mean, my big picture hope is rather we know we haven't got a cunning plan is that we can actually start to have a conversation about this stuff in an in an honest, non-denialist way. And if I can finish with a very quick plug, we've got a collection of essays coming out tomorrow on the empirical impacts of Brexit to date. Everyone read the collection of essays after the annexes. You do the annexes first, then you're allowed the essays. Our stuff doesn't have annexes. Our stuff doesn't have annexes. Still time. You can get them written after like Sophie. What do you want us to take away? So, I mean, I guess the key takeaway, I mean, it's not it's not a very rosy picture, but that the, the productivity, you know, we've had a quite a dire um, recent history of productivity mm. growth in the UK and, and that this is probably going to be, you know, a further drag on that, even kind of going into the future. Um, I think it is really important what we what we do see in kind of regulatory change to try and address that. Um, but we shouldn't we can't just kind of like sweep it under the rug. Um, and I think in terms of like renegotiating the TCA, almost that's... Um, I mean, you can renegotiate the TCA and the Northern Ireland Protocol might be taking us down that line, but that's not um, what, what I'd be recommending. And even within the TCA, as it stands, there's opportunities to kind of work on these, you know, these specific mm. agreements. And it doesn't mean like reopening the entire agreement, putting the entire agreement like on the line and risk losing it. It's just kind of things that you that you could do to kind of be supporting firms within it. Um, that would be one way of, of supporting product. Okay. Very good. Okay, let's thank our panel, everybody, for coming along today and giving us their thoughts on a very uh, easy subject. And obviously, just one thing looking forward, which is maybe we should just try a bit harder not to litigate whether we were right or wrong in the past. Although we all do that internally, but do it internally, right? And then spend more time thinking, what on earth are we going to do in the future? Because one of the things about Britain is like just like in ships, we are all in it together. So we are actually going to have to work out what we're actually going to do to make a success of it going forward. So focus on how to make a success of the country going forward, everyone. Nice, easy thing to keep you going. Uh, have a good day. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you at another event soon. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.